previously on Popping Collars. When I think about travel FOMO now, you know, the fact that I've, I've never been to Israel. Never been. Haven't gone. Have you gone, Ricardo? Uh-uh, but I want to go. Have you, have you gone, Graham? Yes, I've been there. Okay, have you gone, Liz? No, and I'm not particularly interested. Okay, fine. I'm not even talking to you anymore. (laughs) You don't like Jesus, Liz? (laughs) I love Jesus. I can't explain why I don't have this thing that you all (laughs) have. All right, I'm really glad we've established this. It's taken many 88 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. to episode 89 of Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. I'm your host, Liz Easton, coming to you from Omaha, Nebraska, where I serve as the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. And with me are my co-hosts, Greg Knight from Palm Beach, Florida. Greg, what are you up to? Hey, Liz. Sad news from Palm Beach. Yesterday was my very last movie pass movie i have canceled my subscription and so the meg wins as the last the last movie pass movie because it was the only movie that movie pass would let me check into so the meg who knew how was the end of an era uh it was horrible (laughs) (laughs) wow oh man r.i.p movie pass not not with a bang but a whimper huh With me also is my co-host, Ricardo Avila from Los Gatos, California. Ricardo, what are you up to? Hey, Betsy, I am the... I'm not Betsy. <laughs> oh, my God. Whoa. We all sound alike. <laughs> Liz, how could <laughs> I forget? Liz, who I'm going to be traveling with in a yeah. few weeks. <laughs> Liz, I am the rector of, let's see if I can get this right, uh, of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California, just southwest of San Jose, and I have just gotten back from a week-long spiritual retreat. I am looking forward to going with my friend Liz Easton to see, well, we haven't introduced the topic yet. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it later. We'll do it in a minute. Okay. And we are super excited to welcome our special guest on this episode, Marshall Keith Shelley, who's the rector of St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Spotswood, New Jersey. Marshall, what are you up to right now? How's it going? I'll tell you, in New Jersey, it's wet. We've had uh, incredible rain. Actually, the Jersey Shore is flooded right now. And uh, uh, luckily, um, we're we're a bit more inland than that, but uh, it's been very damp. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried about my garden mostly. Yeah. But other than that, it's been lovely. I'm on sabbatical, so. Marshall, you have a garden in the Garden State. I have a garden in the Garden State, and the Garden State is is actually very lovely, even when it is raining. So. <laughs> well, in this week's episode, we are returning to the font of rock and roll where we've been before, and we're considering uh, Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen as our topic tonight. Mm. And I've got to say that I'm not a super huge Springsteen fan, but uh, the topic of this episode is maybe more than a little bit self-serving. Ricardo sort of hinted at this in the intro, but uh, next week, Ricardo and I are going to New York to see Springsteen on Broadway. 
<laughs> yeah. So I've spent a lot of this summer um, kind of doing a deep dive into the Springsteen songbook and also reading his really beautiful memoir that came out re- recently and watching some live footage and interviews. So it's kind of been a Springsteen summer for me. And while I'm not a super fan necessarily, I, d- I do really like the boss and I've always had an appreciation for him, I think. And fans of this show will know that I really love American folk music and also that I really love pop culture that considers the topic of work. Uh, that's come up as a theme over and over again. As I told someone recently, the Benedictine in me has um, cultivated a pretty high theology of work. <laughs> and I think that that's something that Springsteen and I have in common. Um, in addition to his songs about labor and about American industrialism, he himself has a really incredible work ethic that he has sort of pointed in the direction of rock and roll. And that, to me, was one of the most touching parts of his memoir, Born to Run, which I highly recommend. So anyway, I think that it's not a huge stretch to see the connection between Springsteen's music and if not religion directly, then a kind of religious imagination So themes of labor, justice, redemption, hope, these are all major themes in Springsteen's writing. And they're also major themes in the Catholic social teaching that he would have encountered as an American Catholic growing up in the 50s and 60s. So let's just get the conversation started with a real honest check-in question, which is, do you like Bruce Springsteen? What is your (laughs) Springsteen connection you know, getting ready for this podcast, I I went back over a lot of the the songbook I remember from my childhood and my teen years and my formative time, but also the one particular album, The Rising, is has had a big impact on me. I was given it by a parishioner when I was serving a church in Central Jer- Jersey as an as an interim, and it was a couple of years after nine eleven and. And, and I went back and listened to it. And that album not only kind of reawakened that memory of sort of the Springsteen ethos, but also kind of rooted me back into where he has an impact on on my life and the life of the people in New Jersey. I mean, that there's a listening to his music. It, you're you're literally driving on the roads around New mm. Jersey, and and all the <laughs> landmarks stand out, and all of the imagery is right there. What about you, Greg? So when I was in high school, you know, you hit that like age 16, 17, whatever. And where I grew up in North Carolina, all of a sudden, like classic rock was like in our wheelhouse around that time as 90s kids. Like we were looking back to like 70s and 60s rock and roll music and listening to The Who and listening to Eric Clapton and stuff like that. And what I realized was that my parents actually had records hidden in the basement. And uh, <laughs> one of these one of these uh, records was like a compilation record of like Sounds of the 70s or something like that. And it had like Cheap Trick and I don't remember, something else. But the very last song on the record was uh, Badlands. And I remember like playing that record over and over again. Badlands um, is literally my favorite Springsteen song. And I went through a bad breakup a number of years ago, and I listened to Badlands on repeat every time I was in my car. <laughs> I was to, like screaming, listening to Badlands. What about you, Ricardo? My concert going friend. 
Oh, Liz. How much are you going to cry? That's the question. How much do you predict you're going to cry? Depends. Depends on (laughs) uh, what he sings. (laughs) So I'm a, I, I am a lapsed huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I first came across Bruce Springsteen. The earliest I can remember really was when uh, Nebraska came out, uh, which might be Liz, why you like Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) The album is about New Jersey though. I still don't know why he called it Nebraska, but yeah, I remember, I guess the river came out before Nebraska and that was in 1980. And I remember being in Milwaukee. I have this vivid memory. It's in Milwaukee I was under our dining room table with bed sheets kind of covering. So I had like a little cave in there and some radio station. And I can't believe they actually did this legally. They were doing like the top, whatever, 25 albums of the year and playing them in their entirety. And it was like New Year's Eve or something. And I stayed up and um, the river was, you know, like number two or something, number three. And I remember being up really late with my little radio under the table, one in the morning or whatever, listening to the river and just, um, I think, being blown away, although I was really pretty young. I was like 14 years old. Yeah, he's great. I mean, he's so romantic. He's so romantic. Sometimes it's over the top and he's just so righteous. And he, Mm -hmm. as you said, talks about sin and redemption and uh, trying and failing in the working class. And I'll have plenty of stories to say in a little bit because um, he actually helped me kind of heal in some relationships in my family. So, As I said, I don't, you know, we don't want on this podcast to be like stretching to make the connections between religion and pop culture. Although to be fair, we probably do that fairly often, but, <laughs> but I, I don't think that that's, um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch with him. And like, he definitely grew up in a Catholic family uh, he definitely grew up like right next door to a Catholic church and convent and school. Um, and I think there you could make the argument that whether or not this is probably particularly true for Roman Catholics, but whether or not you retain that faith that you grew up in, it's almost like the faith retains you. Like you can't shake it. One of the things that's interesting about New Jersey and not a lot of people know, aside from the fact that the Garden State really means that it's mostly green, not just mm-hmm. the I-95 corridor. Um, and the refineries, but that the church itself, you know, it's more than just the sort of the Catholic dogma or the Catholic theology or the, the church itself has, has a physical impact in every community, you know, that even though I'm, I'm the rector of the, of the Episcopal church in town and it, my little community, it's, it's the oldest continual use religious community going back gum, gumpteen years you know, the big church in town is, is, is immaculate conception. And my, my parishioners send their kids to the, to the Catholic school. I'm close with the Catholic pastor and, and, and he has, you know, he's sort of the the town pastor as well. I mean, there, this is the, the, he's, he's growing up in a matrix that the church has an impact on. And, And because it's a school system too, we are formed in it. You know, it's, it's just had an impact on us. Well, and I would sure. say, and I, I think Bruce would probably say this too, as someone who was probably instrumental in forming him as a musician, but uh, certainly Southern rock artists say that all the time. Like Little Richard learned his craft in church. I mean, it's just like, like it's so interwoven in the lives of like these rock stars and like how they, how they sing and how they present themselves and how, 
how their art connects to their faith or at least like kind of like drives the energy of it and stuff like that. Um, it, it's like a good concert is kind of like going to church a little bit, you know, it's like that. That was actually one of the things I was, uh, I was watching an interview with him and he talked about, cause he has these stunningly long concerts, you know, four hours, three or three and a half hours, four hours, you know, always trying to, and one of the things that he spoke about in an interview is he's always chasing that moment that, that everything else falls away. And he's just sort of, he's home. He says he's connected to the people around him. They're sharing something. Like you say, this is his church. He goes there and it's like, this is communion. This is, this is, this is the union of the body. So, yeah, I've heard him right. also describe the concert experience as very much like a religious experience, like the mystery, the communion, like you mentioned, the word magic to describe that thing that happens when that connection is made and like not in a hocus pocus type of magic, but like truly magical in the same way that when you have authentic spiritual connection, there's a thing other than it, you. Yeah. And it's his Jersey stubbornness. He's going to keep playing until he finds yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going home yet. I know it's 1 a.m. We're not going home until we get there. I think of the lyric in Thunder Road. Um, I know you're searching for a savior to rise from these streets. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm no hero. That's understood. All the redemption I can offer a girl is beneath this dirty hood. With a chance to make it good somehow, what else can we do now but roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair? So he's got that idea of like we, like you were saying, Marshall, we're going to keep going at this until we find the redemption or we find the, the moment of transcendence or, you know, life all around us is difficult and hard and um, disappointing and tragic. But, you know, he's got that romantic thing. I, I call it romantic that won't give up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Uh, so I picked up a book. I can't even remember how I heard about this, but it's a book called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And it's a collection of essays by a writer named Hanif Abdurraqib. He's a cultural critic, so a lot of his essays are about music. And he, do- he does a concert, he does an essay uh, about going to uh, Bruce- see Bruce Springsteen. And I think it's on the tour recently. He did The River. But uh, the-, the name of the essay is A Night in Bruce Springsteen's America. And the first sentence is, to watch Bruce Springsteen step onto a stage in New Jersey is to watch Moses walk to the edge of the Red Sea. So confident in his ability to perform a miracle, to carry his people to the promised land. And then a few paragraphs later, it says, um, whether or not the preacher himself intends this, in the church of Bruce Springsteen, it is understood that there is a singular America, one where there is a dream to be had for all who enter, and everyone emerges hours later closer to that dream. Really quickly, that last part about that read to me as kind of cynical that that there's a singular America, which is probably true, true for from his perspective. But but um, to me, the most of his music is not about getting closer to that dream. It's more about like the dream not coming true or the dream forsaking you somehow. And it's sort of a lot of it is about kind of crushed dreams. American dreams. Remember that episode that we had, I think you hosted it, Ricardo, where Paul Fromberg was on and we were talking about romance movies and he was saying something about like, there's something about the struggle that comes in romance. Like it, you know, it doesn't have to be like this happy ending. Like there can be a struggle and it's a romantic story. And sometimes the romance is in the struggle. 
I mean, that's what Bruce Bruce's music kind of makes me think of is this idea of this romantic struggle. Um, but and also every, every we, Frank Capra movie ever made. Yeah, but also and when we were talking about the American dream, the wrestling fan in me, you know, started thinking of Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> as one does. <laughs> because that's that's exactly where my brain goes to. <laughs> But okay. uh, but Dusty Rhodes, his best promo ever in wrestling was a promo called Hard Times. If you look it up on YouTube, it's great. But he talks about coming back from injury and he's going to come back and he's going to take on Ric Flair for the world heavyweight title. The way that he does it is by saying, you know, you put me out of work and you put me on the shelf. But there are people in this country who have hard times, too. There are people who are out of work and who have been laid off from the plant. And the the foreman, wow. you know, kick, gave him a gold watch, kicked him in the butt, and said, "A computer took your job, Daddy." <laughs> That's wow. hard times. And you know, he makes this appeal, and there's this real kind of romantic longing to the loss and the suffering, and it's like, yeah, hard times. That's what I've had, you know, like and wrecking ball, all of that. Yeah, and it's just like creates this cathartic, and it, it you know, at the end of the promo. Like Dusty Rose is like reaching out. He's like, I want your hand to touch my hand. <laughs> and he's like doing a, and it's just great. Take um, me to but church. It, but it's built around that romantic notion of suffering and like hard times and stuff like that. And I think Bruce kind of taps into that too a little bit. Greg, what a world you live in. <laughs> <laughs> All roads lead to the ring. <laughs> That's great. I do. Again, I just sort of want to reiterate it, that there is sort of this um, underlying and not so underlying to me recurring motif about failing and sinning and needing to be redeemed. And um, I like that he makes it about life. Like he doesn't he doesn't couch it, as you guys were saying, I think earlier, he didn't couch it in in religious language. You know, I sinned and I must be forgiven by Jesus Christ, my savior. There's just a lot of falling short. And there's a lot, you know, he finds redemption in racing in the street. So my favorite Bruce Springsteen album is Darkness on the Edge of Town. But especially in Darkness on the Edge of Town, there's apocalyptic streets of fire, darkness on the edge of town. But there's also like the promised land. And I think that that's got, I mean, obviously it doesn't have to have religious overtones directly. But what I hear in that is a search for a search for meaning and a search for um, just saving yourself. Yeah, and, and the thing that that always moves me about when, again, thinking about this in terms of the context of, of faith and religion and, and the impact that his pop music has on us is that redemption itself is, is a, is a very grown up concept for the music he proclaims like this. This is not, you know, this is not the the redemption of a of an altar call and a wipe the slate clean and start over. Isn't it great? You get a little orange card with a little guy getting out of jail free moment because you said hey to Jesus. You know, it's this deep, heavy. You know, heavy is the wrong word because he plays a light tune to it, but it's this deep, profound awareness that there's a there's a brokenness down way deep in the soul and. And when you when you let it out and you offer it um, and share it, you find you find it you find a place of of both connection and release. You know, 
as I was looking at the disog- discography and, and sort of seeing it's like, you know, so many of these things take us to this little liminal place. You know, I, I always think of St. Paul when I hear him both talking and singing is like, you know, here's a guy who's been there, done that, blessed with so many good things, talent, opportunity, skill, um, dogged determination, will, uh, strength, you know, resolve, ability to bear pain and turn it into something else and then offering it back. You know, I'm all these things, but here, here's this back to you. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this, you know, and redemption itself is, there was, there was a thing in the, in the interview I watched where he's talking, you know, it was, it was good to be 23 and driving around in a car and playing in bars all over New Jersey and, but here's a kid who picks up a guitar and here's a kid who tries to write a song and here's a kid who has a band and here's a kid who has a demo and the demo sells a little bit. And, you know, he talks about all these things where he, he keeps hitting the lottery mm-hmm. <laughs> on opportunity, but, but he's never free from that sense of, yeah, but the reason I'm here is because of this sacrifice that I, you know, this, this broken piece that ne- the two ends that never quite meet and probably won't in this life. I would say I resonate to that, you know. Yeah, that preaches for sure. Can I just say that um, the E Street Band is kind of the most unusual-looking rock band like you've ever... I mean, Clarence is amazing, like, saxophonist, but then you're like, what's saxophone doing in a rock band? You know, it's like the Rolling Stones didn't have a saxophonist. Like what, what's going on? Um, and then you see like, uh, what Max Weinberg just looking so buttoned down, like a golf down shirt. The drums. And it's like Stevie Van Zandt. I mean, everything just looks really weird yeah. when the East, East street <laughs> band is involved, but it all kind of makes sense. It's like, like Nils, Nils Lofgren's like in like this, Bill Lofgren is in this like uh, post-apocalyptic. I've got all these headbands and and, yeah. and rags tied around every extremity of my body as I run <laughs> right. around behind right. it. I mean, it does have a patchwork kind of quality to it, and I think that that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. You know, that idea of like, you know, this this Pauline kind of approach to this thing is like, well, I'm just going to make a community out of whatever I find. <laughs> we'll, we'll just see what we, we'll just see what we come up with. So, well, and he talks about that. That's one of my favorite parts of the book is like this insight into their life as a band, which has been basically, they've been playing together for 40 years and love each other and work hard together. But he does talk about them almost like, his apostles and he doesn't mean that in an arrogant way but he means like this is a ragtag group of people who we were all in this mission together they all knew who was in charge he it was not a democratic band and um they had a job to do and like a mission to fulfill and they sacrificed a ton and worked through some really difficult things together to be together in this common mission I don't, you guys, that's really good. I, I, I hadn't thought about all that before. I think you're totally right. That idea of it being uh, a Pauline thing and, you know, like what the heck, like you wonder what did St. Peter ever talk with Thomas, St. Thomas about? Like, did they even talk? Like, what did Stevie Van Zandt when he sat down in a room? Like, if Bruce leaves a room and it's just Clarence Clements and Steve Van Zandt, like, what are they going to say to each other? <laughs> <laughs> what do they have in common? 
you know, I, I grew up in a household that was very, very rooted in folk music and, you know, some of his, his claimed inspirations are mine as well. You know, Pete Seeger and the Yardbirds and the, and, you know, the whole sort of politics pro- protest era and all that. But he talks about the integrity of the singers that the ability to inhabit a song so much so that people either think that they're living that story or that he lived it when he's mm-hmm. just telling a story. And he says, that's the thing you have to do. You have to get into that space and do that. But again, recognizing the cost of that, of that proclamation, you know, bringing it back around to the Jesus moment is that, you know, he has all of this in his toolbox and he's going to bring that to bear and, and, and his desire to connect because he can't, you know, again, he struggles to connect to himself, to the people that he's most intimate with. So he does that with a uh, stadium of 50,000 people. My, so my father is an uh, immigrant. My parents are both, they, they emigrated from Mexico in the 50s. And my dad worked at U.S. Steel in Chicago. I didn't have the best relationship with my father. Um, he was an alcoholic and he wasn't around. And I was the youngest of five. And I was the one when everyone else was jaded about his promises to stop drinking. I, I was like, he's not going to drink. He promised he wouldn't drink. And sure enough, he goes against drunk. And I just, so I had this complicated relationship with my father. And then he died uh, when I was 25 years old. And sometime after that, I still had anger towards him. I remember hearing the song Factory, also on Darkness on the Edge of Town. It's like, you know, it's about a man who gets up early in the morning Here's the factory whistle blow, goes there, is deadened basically to life because he has to raise his family. And I started bawling. I mean, it's the first time I ever cried about my father. And it was because of listening to that song. And it's not even that great a song, but um, it made me understand my father in a way that I, I couldn't on my own. I needed the experience of Bruce Springsteen singing about his relationship. And I don't know how literal it is with his father. And I know that they had contention as well. So I will always be grateful to him for that. Mm. I was able to kind of forgive my father after he died because of Bruce Springsteen. My heart was so heavy because it was full of dreams and sea. And I had to leave the fields of the because you pushed the max capacity. Not too angry to be sad. I left the good with the free. I left two bad men rising in I knew that I would touch beauty And I'd have to leave from Jersey I'd leave Jersey Um, Now uh, is the portion of our podcast that we call Staff Picks Recommendations from members of our staff for a pick, a pick for you. <laughs> Today's staff pick comes from, <laughs> that was really elegant. Um, our staff pick today comes from Ricardo. What have you got for us? Hey, Liz. Well, Liz, I am taking a page from your book. I am recommending a true crime yes! podcast. Oh, uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about this. Uh, it's called In the Dark. Mm. Have you heard about In the Dark, the podcast? I've heard about it, but I haven't listened to it. So there are two seasons of it, and it's fantastic. Um, it's, it's, it's different than a true crime podcast in the sense that it doesn't track like trying to find the killer of these people sort of thing. Season one actually 
they catch the guy that's been el- elusive for 27 years just as the podcast is, is starting. And so it becomes a procedural about how the police officers in this town in um, Minnesota bungled so much about the investigation that was just basic stuff. And it, it, it was, a, it was a, a child abduction and murder. And I believe the kid who was abducted, uh, it led to um, one of those national laws about um, registering sex offenders and all of that. Um, so I haven't listened to this in a while. And season two is, I think, even better. Curtis Flowers is a man who is accused of killing some people in a furniture store in Winona, Mississippi. And he is in jail for like 22 years, and he's actually never been totally convicted. He's African-American, and the DA is the prosecutor in that town. And just for whatever reason, he decides this is the guy who did it. They imprison him. It's an all-white jury. They find him guilty. They appeal to the state court, and they overturn it because, because the prosecutor did some bad stuff. They go back, and he's been tried six times. And because he's never been convicted, like, unequivocally, they could keep retrying him. And it's stunning. I just, I can't explain it. The racism, the, the anger, the hatred, it's, but it's so fascinating. And this guy, it's so, to me, and I think to any listener, it's obvious that he's innocent. Because there's so many people who just outright lied. And the woman who does the podcast goes and investigates. You know, she goes right up to the door and say, hi. Did you say, did you tell the truth when you were on the witness stand? Oh, oh no, God. no, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't because they just told me they would help me. They would, I would get some of the reward mm-hmm. money. <laughs> Literally on the air. And this guy's still in prison. Yeah, it's called In the Dark. And it's great. And I think my, some of my favorite parts are when uh, the main woman and her friend, two women, and they've got these kind of just sweetest pie voices. <laughs> they just show up and, so, why are you trying? They like ask these like, mean DA guys these very blunt questions and I just picture these young women being like so why are you racist <laughs> so sweetly <laughs> but it's fantastic I recommend In the Dark you can't you won't be able to stop listening to it I think that's there are two awesome. seasons well that's another episode of Popping Collars thank you for listening thank you Greg thank you Ricardo thank you Marshall uh, for joining us on this episode. You can find Popping Collars on our website, poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us anywhere where you find your podcasts. Please um, remember to subscribe and rate and review. That'll help other people find us too. Um, you can find us on Episcopal Cafe where we're a member of their podcasting network. You will. We love Episcopal Cafe. We know that you will too. Search them out for all of your Episcopal news and opinion needs. Everybody loves a Biscoe Cafe. Everybody you loves a Biscoe Cafe. Uh, I love a Biscoe Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, we, we still have t-shirts. We still have t-shirts to sell. We still, but uh, they are running low. So if you want a t-shirt, you better jump on it now. Yeah, come on over to uh, poppingcollarspodcast.com slash t-shirts. That's t-shirts. <laughs> yes. And you'll right. find them. Thanks. We'll... See you guys again in a couple weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Keep those scholars popped. Pop, pop. (laughs) 